Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for our webcast on cost-effective patent prosecution and portfolio management for uncertain times, brought to you by Cognition IT and today's General Counsel. Before we begin the presentation and discussion, I'd like to address a few housekeeping items to help you make the most of your experience. You'll notice at the bottom of your screen, there's a row of icons where you'll find useful information and tools. Specifically, I'd like to bring your attention to the green resource icon. From here, you can download content resources we are sure you will find of interest, including a copy of today's slides presentation. Additionally, we encourage you to use the Q&A feature, which will be monitored throughout the entire program. If you have questions about the subject matter, they will be answered during the Q&A session at the end of the presentation. If your question isn't addressed today, we will follow up after the event. If you have a technical-related question, you may also type that in the Q&A box, and we will do our best to assist you. And finally, as a reminder, today's webcast is being recorded. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce Arun Karuna, Partner and Patent Attorney at Cognition IP, to lead off today's webinar, Cost-Effective Patent Prosecution and Portfolio Management for Uncertain Times. And hello, Arun, let me pass the mic to you. Thank you, Lainey. Hi, uh, my name is Arun Karuna, and I'm with the firm Cognition IP. And our talk today will be on cost-effective patent prosecution and portfolio management, uh, particularly in uncertain times. So just a brief intro here. Uh, my name is Arun Karuna. As I said, I'm a partner and patent attorney at Cognition IP. I have uh, over 15 years of experience, and previous clients have included Apple and Salesforce. Uh, and I've previously been IP counsel at Wolfram Research and GE Healthcare. And also on um, online here is Edward Stakely, who will be uh, speaking as well. He's a managing partner and patent attorney at Cognition IP, and he has uh, 23 plus years of experience. Uh, he's been senior in-house counsel at two Fortune 5 companies, including Apple, and he uh, has been a senior associate at a top-ranking firm in the Global 20. So, uh, as I said, Cognition IP is the firm that we are both from. Um, just a brief intro for us. We are a San Francisco-based intellectual property law firm supporting general counsel and in-house IP teams with on-demand fixed-fee IP counsel and the results expected from a top-tier firm. And just a brief overview here of the topics we're going to be exploring. As the title suggests, the emphasis here is really on cost-effective. So we'll be discussing cost-effectiveness, budgeting, and spend with regard to IP portfolio management and review, patent prosecution and reducing costs, competitive search and analysis, and some other additional considerations. Now, um, every head of IP or a decision maker in charge of IP budgeting will have to meet, uh, at some point, challenging cost reduction demands. Uh, this can be the result of a company's flagging financial performance, or a market collapse, or a global crisis such as the COVID-19 pandemic. When decisions need to be made quickly, it's all too easy to simply abandon the rational approach that one would ordinarily use when not under pressure. In some cases, uh, a sort of panic or turtle shell sort of approach kicks in, almost as if by instinct. One common response is to prioritize short-term cost cutting above all else and to halt all long-term portfolio growth activities. This might be uh, you know, considered a staunch the bleeding sort of mentality. While this requires little effort uh, in most cases and may be quite effective in the immediate term, it still may hamper your company's long-term competitiveness. That's because it has the effect of reducing your company's innovation output and protection, and uh, it can negatively impact the ability for your company to recover quickly and thrive when demand is restored. Since, uh, you know, in a market downturn, uh, downturn, it's inevitable that the cycle eventually corrects itself and demand is restored. So um, you, you would like to ideally position yourself in a place where you're thriving when that happens. Um, and uh, you've, uh, as a company, seized the opportunities that have been provided during the downturn. So moving on, 
Um, we have a quote here over on the side that says, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% budget allocation. Now, this is an unattributed quote, but um, whoever came up with it seems quite wise to me. Uh, so the first topic here is portfolio management and review. And the key uh, consideration here is really just don't shortchange your IP budget in lean times. And I'll be hitting on this over and over again. Um, uh, and now, as far as portfolio management and review goes as a topic, let's talk a bit about that. It's really about crafting an overarching portfolio strategy, reviewing your existing uh, IP portfolio strategy and adjusting it, and figuring out how precisely to maintain and grow your patent portfolio. Uh, and this is particularly with respect to some kind of impetus to rein in your budget uh, or some pressure to cut costs. Now, you might be the ultimate decision maker uh, for your IP budget, and that impetus might be coming from your awareness of industry trends or economic trends or your company financials, or you may be part of a patent or legal department and are receiving some message or some pressure from decision-making executives to cut the budget in some way. So uh, to the extent that you are in charge of bu budget decisions or have some influence over them, my advice is don't shortchange your IP budget in lean times. The temptation is there to cut aspects of your business which don't pay immediate dividends. But this is really a trap. You've presumably started your business as a long-term business built to last and thrive for a long time. And while it's true that filing patent applications and prosecuting them through to allowance and issuance often doesn't pay out in some tangible way in the short term, your patent portfolio really in the long term cuts to the heart of your business. Uh, these, uh, your, your patent portfolio really captures and protects your strengths. Uh, they might be known as your trump cards or your quantifiable advantages over rivals and competitors. Even beyond that, they simply just re represent the technology territory that you've staked out and laid some claim to. And they represent protection of the fruits of your research and development energy and expenditure which for many companies is no small amount. They also represent protection of the efforts of the innovation and talent you have at your particular company, your brilliant teams, your star players, and the work they pour sweat and tears into. In some cases, your patent portfolio directly addresses your improvements and your features over competitors' products in a strategic way, um, and we'll be getting into that a bit further along. Um, and you know, even beyond that, as defensive mechanisms, they may be some of the only tools you have to strongly defend yourself against companies accusing you of infringement, which can be incredibly costly and damaging to your business if unchecked and not convincingly addressed. Your IP portfolio is really best thought of as an investment, um, and we'll be talking a bit more about the implications of that. So what metrics should I use for budgeting? Let's go to the next slide here. If you're a startup, the metrics and loose guidelines you follow may be tied to what stage of a startup you are and might have more of a percentage-based um, metric or, or loose guideline there. So pre-seed and seed stage startups should, just as a loose guideline, think about putting 5% of their available budget toward establishing a patent portfolio. They are new, they don't have a portfolio yet, and they really need to make a mark, uh, convince investors that they're worthy of backing, and um, really just assert themselves, get their core technology down. Later stage startups and early enterprise, um, you should think about maybe putting two to 5% of your budget toward establishing a patent portfolio. Uh, and that really might vary, you know, the, the more uh, you lean towards the early enterprise aspect, the more you might consider um, two to even 10% really of your budget. Um, but later stage startups, you could probably get away with 5% or so. Um, but more importantly for, I think, um, a lot of people here, uh, if you're an established or publicly traded company, do you go with uh, some sort of a loose guideline in terms of a number or percent? Um, I would argue not. It's more about uh, are your bases covered uh, and that sort of question. This really goes towards understanding what your existing patent portfolio consists of, what your product areas are, what the core of your business is about, and whether your portfolio adequately covers the spread of that core and those product ideas. So a good and useful way to think of this is 
what is my underlying technology and what are the applications of that technology? Both are worth patenting, but the underlying technology really goes to the core of your business. And if you don't have that uh, patented, then, uh, you know, you'll, you'll really, it'll be a liability in the long term uh, and you'll be um, foregoing some, some serious value and protection there. So um, the underlying techno technology is really important to establish and, and get protection for. Um, and then beyond that, the applications of that technology might be considered the products or services that you're um, putting out into the market. And you want to make sure that you cover a decent spread of those across your product areas. So um, making sure that you answer those questions um, will help you a long way towards figuring out how much you should be budget budgeting. Uh, once you figure out uh, what your gaps are, uh, for example, what product areas you don't adequately have covered, then you can think about making sure those are protected and budget accordingly. Um, and then next, how exactly do I prioritize inventions? And for this, I'll be um, taking it over to uh, Ed Stakely, uh, who will be discussing this. And I'll just move on to the next slide over here for him. Great. Thank you, Arun. I think the development of a patent portfolio, it's, it's important to have an overall strategy for your business, understanding how money is invested in a patent, if it is worthwhile uh, to do so, and then evaluating a patent application over the course in the life of the patent. So it's important initially to have some type of program or process to consider the innovations of a company and then look at that innovation in the context of how important that innovation is to the company. And then also is that same innovation, is it, is it important to competitors? So with this evaluation, you can evaluate new innovations of a company in terms of a business value and a leverage value. Can you go to the next slide? Okay. So what, what this means is that many companies will have different degrees of invention harvesting. Larger companies typically have invention disclosure submission portals or programs. Startup companies may not have any any type of uh, way to capture innovation. So preceding this invention rating, there is an aspect of how, how do you go about capturing inventions and, and uh, it is, it is a, a process that needs to be implemented and overseen by somebody at the company. It, it can be someone at the company or you can use someone external to help facilitate invention harvesting. But ultimately, what goes on is that one understanding the developments of the company then pulls together this information either through in submitted invention disclosures or is looking for innovations. And then either a person or a team looks at these innovations in the context of the company, the company's goals, and evaluates the, the value of that innovation. In other words, do you really want to invest monies into that particular uh, technology and patent it. I strongly believe that most companies have a lot of innovation and there's a lot that can be patented, but a reasoned strategic approach to get quality patents to me is really important and not numbers. So through a, a process where you're evaluating the business value, which looks at components such as whether or not the particular technology or innovation is a core fundamental invention? Is it used in a product? Is it nascent or evolving technology? Is it in a crowded space? So, so you can evaluate an innovation in terms of how important is this innovation to the, to the company? So one can rate that and you can come up with a different ranking uh, system, but, but ultimately you want to try to come up with different tiers for that innovation. And then leverage value is looking at the innovation from the terms of, is this innovation important 
possibly important to competitors? Do they have an interest in it? Do you think they're going to copy that innovation? Is it detectable? Can can you actually learn that some other company is infringing your patent on it? And then also, you want to consider claim scope. At the end of the day, how how broad can this patent be, and what will it cover? If it if you think it's really going to be a crowded in a crowded space and claim scope is limited, then you may rate this particular innovation a little bit lower. So by evaluating these inventions with some type of scale, you, you come up with different tiers and the top tier innovations are those that you strongly want to consider to patent. So this is just coming up with a decision then to maybe engage outside patent counsel or to, if you have in-house attorneys, to prepare patent applications on those technologies. And then it, it, this, this ranking really doesn't end just from the point of filing. So this is a, a system that you use and this is where then you evaluate over time claims and where the patent is going because what today might be very important to the company, you have a, a shift and it's no longer important, then you really want to make the decision, do, do I want to prune this particular patent? Do I want to try to sell it? If it's no longer of value, if it's not a top tier A or B type of uh, innovation for the company, then you don't really want to invest any more monies in that and, and then try to do something with that particular um, patent that, that's pending. Um, I think that might be it on the slide. Good. Thanks, Ed. So next topic here uh, for portfolio management and review is defending against budget cuts. So you might be responding to pressure from above to slash your patent budget in various ways, which can lead to filing or prosecuting less patent applications or even bringing the number of filings down to zero or getting rid of outside counsel or in-house counsel or finding new outside counsel to replace your existing counsel, and so on. So just some strategies for defending against budget cuts if you, um, if you are trying to grow your patent portfolio or uh, make sure that it's treated as an investment. So competitive landscape analysis is useful in understanding the portfolios of your competitors and seeing if those portfolios can justify cutting your own portfolio's budget or leaving it as it is or devoting more resources to growing your portfolio. So it's really valuable intel uh, that you can use um, and bring to your executive board or decision makers. Or if you're the decision maker, um, valuable intel for you. So we'll discuss that in a bit more detail later on. Um, aside from that, the timelines for filing patent applications really don't always align with the business timelines for cost-cutting measures. So in lean times, you might have added pressure in, within your company for teams to ramp up product releases and product development in response to flagging sales or a difficult market, or to hunker down on innovation and research in order to uh, bring new products to market. Um, both of those kind of renewed or, um, you know, expanded efforts are often tied with patent application filings when innovation happens uh, in order to get out ahead of the competitors in your market. Um, and it's really important to file something before um, a product announcement or, you know, you go public with something. So, you know, it's a first to file system and really you want to get a provisional or a non-provisional out there as soon as possible. Um, if you're going to be ramping up, um, uh, or accelerating your product roadmap. So, you know, shortchanging those timelines for the patent application um, really does not do you any service uh, when it comes to um, your patent portfolio. So it's, it's worthwhile to keep that in mind and to communicate that as well, because it might not be obvious to the decision makers, but uh, it's an important consideration. Um, Aside from that, your current outside counsel might be expensive. So uh, in, if that's the situation, in lean times, you might be considering exploring less expensive outside counsel. And that might be a viable strategy. Uh, and we'll discuss that a bit shortly as well. Um, lastly, my uh, admonition here is don't patent just for numbers um, in terms of the number of patents that you have, but instead patent for quality. Um, 
you know, a smaller number of really strong on-point patents is much more valuable than a larger number of weak or moderate patents that don't adequately cover your product uh, areas or your products or your underlying technology. So um, think about quality, especially in lean times, uh, rather than quantity. So next up, uh, the topic generally will be about patent prosecution and reducing costs. And uh, by patent prosecution, we just mean the sort of things like preparing and filing patent applications and then getting them through the system where there's a back and forth with a patent examiner, um, you know, in some cases a potential appeal, uh, and then through to issuance um, uh, as well, allowance and issuance. So we'll just be talking about a few of those things. Um, and the first bullet point here is simply achieving the same results with a smaller budget. So when I'm talking about this topic, um, I'm talking primarily about outside law firms. Um, so you don't necessarily need to rely on well-known brand name firms. Uh, you can find expertise in IP and within patent law without paying a premium. Um, and it really, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, that brand name recognition is a large part of what that um, price, that, that service fee uh, uh, is and why it's so outsized. Um, and, you know, they might have a reputation for achieving um, results, but uh, you can achieve those same results potentially at a smaller or medium IP boutique. Um, and Really, in order to make a smart decision there, in order to get less expensive outside counsel, um, you want to consider who that team is, uh, what their experience is, uh, have they been at some of those big firms, which um, many people consider uh, sometimes to be training grounds or, um, you know, uh, working in the trenches to really get that expertise. Um, so does, does that firm have some history of uh, that in their past? Um, and do they have experience in your particular uh, technology? You know, if, if there's an IP boutique that's particularly well known for biochem or for computer science, then you want to, um, you know, consider that a strength that they have what, what your uh, technology is in terms of understanding. Um, so those are just a few considerations. Um, and you can also see some of the results uh, in some cases of uh, have they been more successful than not? Uh, what is their sort of percentage of allowances and things like that? So next up, do you have a robust continuation strategy? So uh, next slide over here just shows a, a really brief um, uh, understanding of what's a very basic patent family. So there's a parent application there. And then there's two uh, uh, continuation applications which proceed from that parent application. Each one of them has a unique set of claims. So it's really important to draft a, a parent application from the beginning in such a way that it leaves the door open for multiple continuation applications to be filed from it. This might be known as a layered or a tiered approach. Uh, and really it's a, aside from expanding your protection and really covering your bases, it's a great cost-saving strategy as well because continuation applications, um, which piggyback from a parent application, are typically much less expensive to prepare than that parent application. They can each cost a fraction of the outlay for the parent, uh, and yet they can potentially pay large dividends relative to that cost outlay that is involved. You can also file continuation uh, continuation applications after an allowance is granted for an application, but before the issuance fee is paid. Uh, and this is a period in which you'll be privy to the patent examiner's reasons for allowance of your particular par uh, parent application. And that can be studied to understand what worked during the course of your prosecution and what didn't. Uh, so what amendments were convincing uh, and led your application to being patentably distinguishable from the prior art references that the examiner cited. Once you know this, you can craft a set of claims that laser focus on only the convincing amended provisions of your claims, avoiding all the cruft and baggage that ended up not being so material to your application being allowed. Uh, and so you end up with bit better, stronger set of claims for not much more money. During this period, you might also have a better sense that um, than when you filed of what your competitors takes 
on your particular product or service are and what their competitive offerings in this area are. So you can then craft continuation claims which can be laser focused toward addressing their particular solutions and emphasizing that your idea was first to being filed before your competitors got their offerings out of the gate or simply emphasizing your ideas distinguishing features, improvements, or additions over those solutions. This can be a, really a keen way of generating valuable IP assets that you can assert against copycats or those piggybacking off of your R&D, or your competitors um, may, might even be interested in licensing those patent assets. And uh, they can also be key defensive tools which ward off your competitors' attempts to accuse you of IP infringement. So bottom line, you, pay, you might pay more initially for continuation applications, but that patent with the refiled continuation, you've already invested in filing of the original patent. You just have a continuation with new claims that reads um, upon a competitor's product. So can be very valuable to do that. Arun, uh, can I add a, so, just one comment on that too? Sure, go ahead. Uh, yes, so with the, with the uh, filing of an application, I think a very good approach, it's somewhat counterintuitive if you're not following this, is that uh, ideally we, we all want the broadest protection of an invention that we can obtain. Um, but often I, I find that if, if you go into prosecution with a narrow set, narrower set of claims and get a quick win with an examiner, uh, where you're interviewing an application with the examiner and you, you may obtain an allowance on a narrower uh, invention that through that examination, you get to hone in on maybe what, what the examiner thinks is innovative and then you can later file a continuation with broader claims. So the focus might be on a claim that has uh, it's so important and covers your, your uh, company's product or technology, and then you get a patent on it sooner, and then later you file a continuation application with broader claims. And this actually reduces the cost of prosecution because there are not as many office action responses. And if you start really broadly, you're, you're no doubt going to receive an office action. You're going to have to amend the claims likely anyway. So it's best, I think, to maybe start a little bit narrower and then go broader with a continuation application. Thanks, Ed. Yes, that's it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that gets exactly to our next um, topic, getting to allowance faster. So as you can see, we want to work with, not uh, against the patent examiner to achieve allowance in fewer rounds. Um, what we have here is just a you know, brief diagram of the cycle of office actions that is pretty common. So uh, you might get an office action as a, um, uh, a first, uh, you know, follow-up to your application being filed. Um, that's from the examiner, and it might include a rejection of your claims. After that, you would uh, potentially interview the examiner and then uh, file a response to that office action with amendments uh, or amendments to the claims or um, arguments. And that might lead to another office action. Uh, and this, this uh, circle might happen potentially a few times. Um, and somewhere in the middle of that process, you might decide to abandon or you might decide to appeal. Um, and uh, ideally, at the end of the, the process, you have an allowance and then uh, an issuance of that patent. So with some ways to achieve allowance quicker, uh, as Ed said, uh, having more narrowly directed claims from the start can be pretty useful, uh, and, and simply not taking as much of an adversarial approach to interacting with and responding to the patent examiner. Um, you want to draft also in the interest of nudging your application into particular art units in some cases that might have better numbers for historically granting allowance in less, um, in less or fewer office actions. So one thing uh, also that is important to consider is fast track or expedited prosecution, which is an, an option you can have for a fee to um, 
uh, guarantee uh, a completion of the prosecution within one year. This can give a really quick early indication of whether you want to file internationally. Um, so in some cases, this might be even better than filing a PCT application because you have a full prosecution history of a parent application that's completed within a year uh, under this expedited track. And you have an understanding of the types of prior art that will be asserted against an analogous parent, uh, patent application in a different country. Uh, so for, for our firm, our earliest allowance was 2.3 months using this process for a pretty robust application. Um, and we were able to file multiple continuations um, off of that, uh, just as Ed had mentioned as well. Uh, so now uh, the next topic would be just international protection considerations, and uh, Ed will be talking about that a bit. All right, thank you, everyone. Yeah, so thinking about international protection of your technology, it's it's a very important decision in where do you protect, but along with international protection comes I think a very significant cost for many companies. So where where you want to file the technology that you want to protect, you really have to give a lot of consideration to that. And similarly, with in the U.S., does filing in in different countries make make sense? There there are different approaches to extending the overall investment in in your patent application when you file it. There are ways uh, to obtain a quick read uh, of patentability of, of your technology. And, and many, many companies will file a PCT application, which basically gives you a preliminary examination by a patent examiner in a, in a designated uh, patent office. So there, there's a way to obtain an understanding quickly, at least from the preliminary examination of how likely the technology, the claimed invention, if it will be patentable or not. And even if you go this route, which if you file a PCT application, you, you have up to about 30 months, a little bit longer in some countries from the date the application is filed, or if it's based on a priority document, then to file in other countries. So it's used quite a bit if you if you have high high tiered innovations that you want to protect and evaluate whether or not you should file them in other countries. So PCT application approaches is commonly used, and it does give you a sense of whether or not that technology can be patented. And similarly with the track one approach in the US, you as well can get the examination done quickly by an examiner and get an indication of prior art and the, the possibility of patenting in other countries. And there is a caveat that even if you get a favorable examination decision by an examiner through the PCT or the US examination that each country examines a little bit differently, so you may get different results. But but it is a good way to at least, if you were to go and file a PCT application, receive an international search report, and then use that as a, a, a decision point to go into other countries. And then what countries do you want to protect in? Uh, another consideration is just understanding, again, the value of that patent in those countries. And as many as many of you know that filing in those countries where there might be manufacturing or uh, potential customer use, I think are the key considerations to file into those countries. And uh, while, while it's important to protect in many countries, it does, it does get cost prohibitive. So what, what I think is a, is a good balanced approach is uh, finding the countries which have better enforcement uh, legal systems, uh, populations where your your products will be used or manufactured. Typically, uh, at the top of the top of the list is the U.S., uh, probably Europe next, and there there are a lot of companies filing in China as well. Uh, so so those are kind of like the, the top three. But really, you you want to evaluate filing into other countries as to whether or not you think that 
your patent will be in, infringed in, in that country. And also, you may want to consider filing in those countries if you have foreign competitors in those countries where they're located to to plant some patents, so to speak, in, in the areas where, where they're present in, in the event that you're building a defensive portfolio and then you have some patent assets to use. Thanks, Seth. Okay, uh, I think next slide, yeah. Yep. So uh, next up is, uh, we'll be talking about cost effectiveness uh, in regards to searches. Uh, there'll be two searches that I talk about. One is patentability search and one is competitive search and analysis. Uh, so I'll be talking about each of those in turn. First is uh, a patentability search. So what exactly is that? Uh, also known as a novelty search in some cases. Uh, this is conducted before filing a patent application in order to get a sense of whether the invention is novel and whether there is any prior art that can be turned up in the search which is relevant or reads closely upon your invention. This can give you an early preemptive sense of how prosecution can be expected to go. Um, that said, not all application filings uh, necessarily merit a patentability search. Um, and in some cases, uh, companies opt not to do a patentability search. If your company is new to a particular market or product area, you might not have a, you know, a comprehensive sense of what else is out there. Um, and so this can provide that uh, for you. And you can get a better read on um, how prosecution is going and how, um, how, what are your chances, I guess, of uh, moving towards allowance and issuance. You can potentially save money by deciding not to file an application, or you can alter or improve your idea such that it meets the criteria of patentability um, based on this search. But uh, if you're patenting in a product area that uh, you've been well established in, you've already filed uh, at least a couple applications on, um, you're pretty well aware of what's out there. Uh, there's not as much utility to a patentability search, so you might be able to um, do some cost savings by foregoing that. So competitive landscape searches um, can give you the lay of the land. Um, what are those exactly? So this involves performing searches of patent databases and analyzing the results to better understand the portfolios of your key competitors. Uh, so this one is more narrowly focused on what your key competitors are doing, what they've filed, um, and what, what's been patented and what's currently pending. You can use competitors' patent filings to evaluate your current investments and your future patent rights. You can decide whether your current portfolio strategy doesn't grow your portfolio enough or in the right places, or is actually more developed than your competitors, or simply positions you on an even footing with them. And based on this, you can adjust your strategy accordingly. Uh, so this also allows you to keep tabs on what a competitor is trying to protect, which provides a glimpse into the competitor's planned business strategy. If you understand the direction your comp competition is headed, uh, then you can prepare in advance for any patent rights your competitors may ultimately be granted, and then shore up your own portfolio and business efforts. So a lot of people, I think uh, a lot of companies kind of underestimate competitive landscape searches or simply don't consider them. Um, they might be more inclined to do patentability searches, but then um, they don't think about competitive searches. So uh, I would uh, recommend this as a way of having a, a fairly minor expense uh, in, at the initial outset, but then um, that can pay real dividends later on. And it can really allow you, with that knowledge, um, to thrive in the long term and reap the benefits um, after the current uh, economic climate is in the past or um, the current situation is over. Uh, and yeah, finally, this simply allows you to pinpoint areas where compet uh, competitors have no patent protection um, and capitalize upon those areas with filings in order to gain a competitive advantage over them. So this is just a really simplified idea of what a competitor landscape analysis um, might result in, in terms of some sort of visual. So you have your product areas. Those might be machine vision, blockchain, SaaS, and streaming media. And then um, let's say you are one of those companies, Apple, and then you're looking at LG and Samsung. So you can get an idea of how many patents have been filed in each product area from you and from your competitors and size up your own portfolio in relation to other portfolios. 
if there's a gap um, in a competitor, then uh, uh, you know in a particular product area, then you can kind of exploit that gap and use it as an uh, opportunity to gain leverage uh, and a competitive advantage, and um, a lot of other things. So I think it's a really important thing to at least consider. Um, and then acquiring promising assets at uh, discount prices. So, um, you know, this, this goes towards simply um, grabbing the opportunities that you can uh, during uh, a low time or a lean time and um, seeing what you can get at a, a price that you ordinarily would not be able to get it for. So if a competitor is struggling, then you might be able to acquire some of their IP uh, at a, a fairly low rate. Um, and you can really um, take advantage of that. It's really about how can you thrive and gain opportunities. Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, some of the more successful companies really took that to heart, uh, and it was very obvious. So other considerations. Um, you might want to consider alternative legal service providers uh, and outside counsel. And uh, these are companies which specialize in providing high-demand legal services, such as accounting and audits, compliance, discovery, document review, due diligence, and intellectual property services. Uh, and these can be really useful companies to hire uh, for tasks which don't require the rigorous application of legal skill from more dedicated, ongoing, outside or inside counsel. Uh, and this can be a way to potentially reduce spend and possibly even improve some systematic elements of legal processes, which can be broken down and performed more efficiently. Um, so these companies don't pretend to be law firms. Rather, they are legal services businesses, and they can provide services that law firms would traditionally offer, but often at a lower cost. So worth considering for sure. Um, and then another consideration would be alternative fee arrangements. And this question on the right is asking, is your outside counsel able to work within your budget, not just an ideal budget? So um, think about that in terms of your existing outside counsel. And um, you know, if you're considering uh, some prospective counsel that you would retain, uh, think about this as well. Just a few of the um, alternative fee arrangements that you might want to consider. A portfolio fee. This is a lump sum amount that's paid for legal services covering a large body of legal work. Uh, if there's going to be a steady constant flow of patent application filings or prosecution, it might make sense to simply pay more of a lump sum uh, or arrive at some similar sort of arrangement. Hard caps, uh, these are billed at an hourly negotiated rate, uh, provided that the client will pay up to but not more than the hard budget number. Uh, this can provide certainty to your company regarding the fees, which can be beneficial, particularly in uncertain times. Um, and then flat fees or fixed fees. This would be simply an agreed-upon fixed fee for the work over a specified uh, period. This provides consistency in the cost, which can be really great. You get a much better understanding and reliability in terms of how much each application will cost and then how much um, uh, you can budget uh, it can be much more effective for budgeting with this kind of consistency. And then finally, blended rates. These are rates that are blended between partners and associates of the law firm. Uh, and one blended rate is simply charged to the client for all work performed by the firm. This can be really good um, for uh, sort of uh, arrangements that bill by hourly rates. Um, they can be simpler. However, there might be less incentive for senior people to do the work, and you get, might get more junior people doing the work than senior people. So worth being aware of um, and watching out for. Another consideration is uh, you might be able to leverage AI and legal tech in order to do some cost cutting and savings um, that can be very uh, useful. So just some ideas for you to take away here. Um, uh, and, you know, there's the ability for technology to improve your processes, improve productivity, reduce wasted time, and modernize your ways of working. So um, just a few of these to highlight. Document execution, uh, DocuSign, et cetera. This is uh, probably pretty obvious for, for a lot of you, but it's worth uh, considering leveraging that uh, and modernizing your approach to that. 
due diligence, uh, acquiring someone's IP or a major company merger or acquisition, there's a lot of due diligence work that needs to be involved uh, regarding that other company's IP, licensing, et cetera. So um, worth considering leveraging some AI and legal tech for that. And then patent preparation. Uh, currently, AI is in a bit too primitive a state right now to handle preparation of a patent application entirely without a human being uh, involved. But it can be used to assist with manual work done by a patent attorney or agent. Um, and I think that's constantly improving uh, and will be something that will be uh, definitely worth considering uh, in the future. So uh, just a few uh, takeaways. Keep an eye on incentivizing key innovation stakeholders, um, spending a bit on providing financial incentives to those coming up with the inventive ideas at your company. Uh, it, it's a bit of an outlay at the start, but it can go a long way towards positioning you ahead of the competition. Uh, think about when to license or modify revenue streams. Such times can be a really good opportunity to explore uh, new product areas, new revenue streams that you otherwise wouldn't have. Um, and simply emphasize what works and cut what doesn't. And then um, in terms of how previous challenging times went, uh, I think looking at uh, some history of uh, how those times have went is things got rough, you know, in the mid-2000s, for example. But eventually they corrected themselves. And you really want to look for the long tail and um, how can I thrive once things do inevitably correct themselves? Um, because that's where your company is going to be make or break. Um, you know, it's not just something where you want to take only a staunch the bleeding kind of approach and, and go into emergency panic mode. Um, you want to be looking ahead at all times. Uh, that's the, the proper way to invest in uh, a proper patent portfolio and an IP strategy. So next up we have a Q&A. Um, feel free to ask your questions uh, via the Q&A icon or at hello at cognitionip.com, and we'll make sure to uh, get to you. Uh, and just, um, I think uh, Lainey has uh, my first question over here, uh, so I'll just read that off. How should I know how many continuation applications to file? Um, Ed, would you be interested in taking that one on? Uh, sure, Arun. So uh, <clears throat> you know, what, what we're trying to do here is to help help everyone with utilizing their their budgets and really justifying the investment in a patent portfolio. One really good approach, I think, to maximizing uh, the filing or the preparation of the patent application, you, you you really need to start all the way back to the preparation of the patent application. But um, what you what one should do is ensure that maybe there's a lot of variety, description, different type of uh, what we would call embodiments, ways of performing, doing, or uh, certain structures in a patent application describing the technology. So it, it all starts with the preparation of a patent application. And basically what I'm saying is to bake in a lot of alternative functionality or structures so that later when you go through examination, you can focus on a, a, a general concept, but some of those concepts might be, again, too broad. So starting with the narrower functionality, uh, you could potentially get that patented. And then once a patent application is allowed, after you've established rapport with the examiner, you do have a sense of what at least the examiner thought was uh, innovative or the prior art doesn't really show. So you can then maybe focus on broadening claims in a continuation and honing in on that particular innovative aspect. But um, also what's important is to review, review the application and see if there is any other subject matter that wasn't claimed and seeing if it does, again, fit within the criteria of having business value and leverage value. Would it be important to file? So. Uh, there's not really a rule of thumb as to how many applications you file, but I have found that really uh, trying to get the most out of a single application probably gives you the most value in the investment of that initial filing because the continuation application is, is much more, uh, well, less expensive to prepare continuation claims and file and potentially get a, another patent on 
some other area that's important to the company. So I think that uh, continuation filing is, is a really good way to build out a portfolio in a cost-effective approach. And then also, as an aside, it, it is important to at times keep a patent application pending uh, because another thing that I, I personally like to do is uh, work with clients to evaluate competitor technology and see if we have a patent uh, application that's pending that might cover some of the technology that, that they have, a competitor has come up with after the patent application is filed. So in my opinion, the best patent is the one that maybe doesn't cover your products, but covers your competitor products because it's a very usable uh, asset at that time. So having a continuation uh, and, and evaluating your com competitor products to see if you have an opportunity to draft a claim set that would read on their technology. So that's a very good use of a continuation application as well. Yeah, I would concur with all of what had said. Um, and yeah, just to drive the point home again and again, uh, a continuation application is really just a fraction of the cost of a parent application. So you can get really maximum uh, usefulness out of that um, and maximum spread of covering your inventions and product ideas for a minimum amount. Uh, another question over here from Lainey is, what's the best way of deciding what to file internationally? Um, so you have an opportunity to file a PCT application with uh, stages to various countries. Um, and then you can have uh, the ability to uh, get an international search report, which can provide you with some sense of how uh, your application might go in various countries. Um, and and what's your chances. So you can use that international search report to get a good idea of whether to proceed with um, foreign filing in various countries or not. In terms of which countries to file in, um, it might involve thinking about where your markets are. Um, you know, do, do I have a market in China? Is there a demand for this product that the inv invention um, is tied to? Uh, if that's the case, then you might want to consider it. Uh, obviously, it's very expensive to file in many, many countries. So um, most clients, uh, regardless of how um, you know successful they are, um, they tend to limit it to just a few countries, uh, and they choose those countries carefully. So um, uh, common ones might be things like uh, you know countries like China, Germany, um, a few other key countries in Europe. Um, so those are some you might want to consider. Um, and it really is just case dependent on your company, um, its products and geographies, and uh, the product uh, and services that you provide as well. Uh, Ed, did you have any thoughts on uh, the best way of deciding what to file internationally? Yeah, I, I think what, what uh, people may not appreciate is that uh, with patent prosecution, uh, what as an in-house uh, general counsel or an in-house counsel, patent counsel, whatnot. Uh, at least when I was in-house, I, I I didn't like kind of surprises and uh, unbridled runaway prosecution costs. And and that that can happen if one isn't really watching what's going on, and if if you really don't have uh, some oversight in uh, what outside counsel is doing. As to international filing, the same is true in that the the costs they're not quite exponential, but they they are very significant. So it is, I think, probably surprising as to the 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 amount of investment in that patent asset in different countries. So it, it is very 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 important. I think even from the very selection of an innovation to patent to, to make a decision. Is, is this something that we likely will want to file internationally? And it, it is expensive. And uh, a way to think about it, too, is if it's really backing up uh, fundamentally some type of revenue generation in a country or likely will protect that revenue stream, then that that patent, I think, is justifiable to file in, in a country. Um, but it, it is 
It is something that I, I think many companies probably file in other countries, but there's not a, a well, there's not reasoned as to really maybe why so much. What what are we going to get out of it? So I, I think with any investment, you really want to think of it as that and that it is an asset of the company and there are many reasons to to patent something but one of them is to protect your revenue streams and consider it as an asset and how are you going to use it and like if you really don't have a good reason to use it in a country uh, there is some prospective use of it then i think that maybe it wouldn't be justified to file in a, in a country so as rune said typically a couple of countries is uh, is usual for many technologies when you get into life sciences pharmaceuticals medical devices you'll find a lot more filings in different countries uh, <clears throat> on the the other side when you get into maybe software software related technologies uh, maybe not as much filing in, in other countries so it really boils down to again where you're competitors might be located, manufacturing, and customer use. Great. And uh, we have time for one more. So this question is, how should we think about starting a patent program internally if one doesn't yet exist? And Ed, I think you might uh, be a good uh, person to answer this one as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I think uh, so my, my, my experience, uh, again, being being uh, in-house patent counsel at Apple and also as IP counsel for a startup company, uh, how, do you, how do you get, find, harvest innovation? And uh, it, it, is, it, it is important that you have a, a person who can do that. And, and that can be either someone from a legal department, it can be someone in, in an engineering group or product group that will own own this program or process. And the, the patent program is essentially having someone who can help harvest or identify innovation of the company. And with that, a patent program could be as simple as setting up some type of portal or some other type of system where people can submit ideas or you, you actually have someone sitting with engineering teams, research and development, and then identifying those innovations. But there, there really needs to be a person who can help uh, kind of go out and, and find those innovations for the company. So do you have anything else to add to that, Arun? No, I think you covered it. That's, um, that's exactly right. Uh, I, I would just add, it's um it's really important and it's it's a bit of an intangible thing to solve for but uh it's important to create a culture of IP um and you can do that by as i had mentioned before incentivizing key innovation stakeholders so you know making sure that you provide some financial incentive for um inventors when they uh, have an idea that's filed on or um you know, things of that nature, and then just really fostering training of IP and, and things of that nature. Um, these are things that not everybody considers, but uh, I think they're really important. There's a lot of misunderstanding and mystification around IP that um, you can really address from the gate and uh, make sure that uh, your company is all on the same page uh, when you're starting your patent program. Yeah, and I Great. think, too, that... One more comment that the the executive team management really needs to buy into the IP program for the company. It has to be a, more of a top-down approach that it is part of uh, who the company is and that innovation is important and then protecting uh, the innovation from, from the executive team uh, to really make a kind of a, a patent program successful. I think that's a great note to end on. I'm I'm going to pop in here and um, thank you both, Arun and Ed. This was excellent, excellent content, and I'm sure our audience appreciated it. Um, as a reminder to our audience, you can download copies of the slide presentation and um, follow up with any additional questions um, through the portal or through the hello at cognitionip.com. Um, email address. And as a reminder, you'll all be receiving a copy of the link 
of the recording to this presentation, and um, you can feel free to share that. We really thank you for joining us today, um, and um, we appreciate the participation of those who are able to ask questions. And uh, thank you again to all, and, and have a great day. I'm, I'm going to uh, close this out now. I hope everyone has a great rest of your day. Take care.